Good morning. Good to be in the Lord's house. Amen. I don't know if you saw the title of the sermon. It was not on the bulletin. The title of the sermon is, Why Are You Still Walking Around? Um, I think if you've been here in the series, you understand the origin of that question. But the title is, Why Are You Still Walking Around? Um, this morning, I want to continue our look at Yahweh. Uh, it's not only a fascinating study for the true believer, um, I think it's urgently necessary. I think it's urgently necessary that we proactively look at God. Uh, I've said it to you in this series, I really don't think you can be a Christian at all unless you are daily looking at who He is. A.W. Tozer was a famous preacher in the last century. He said, one can scarcely claim to be a Christian at all if you don't know who he is. A.W. Pink, the author of the book we're studying on Sunday evenings, The Attributes of God, he says it perfectly in the preface. He says, an unknown God can neither be trusted, served, nor worshipped. Amen? If you don't know who he is, how can you presume to trust Him or serve Him or worship Him. It, this is another one of those verses I always go back to, one of my fundamental verses, John 17, 3. Jesus says, this is eternal life. What? That they, what? May know you. This is Jesus talking to the Father. This is Christianity. That they may know you. So what better thing to do than preach a sermon series just looking at Yahweh and having a Bible study where we just look at God. What better thing is there for us to do as a church? And you guys know John 10. Um, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and what? My own know me. They know me. Again, biblical Christianity is just always Relational. So we've been looking at Yahweh for eight of the previous nine weeks in part to parallel and support the Sunday night study that we've been going through. Last week we paused in our series of strictly looking at God to consider how looking at God should impact our lives. And as you may recall, we were in Psalm 16 and we we keep raising the same question, have we truly reckoned with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God? This is the question that's been before us all the way through this series. And we said last week there are at least two implications to this question. One would be, have you really dealt with the, the potter and the clay thing? Have you really dealt with that? Have you dealt with Isaiah 66 too? Have, is your life, does your life, the aroma of your life, is it contrition? Is it humility? And are you happy and eager and willing to tremble before Yahweh if necessary? God says, this is the man and woman that I look to. The men and wo women who are willing to do this. The second thing we saw was that we have, and we saw this last week with David in Psalm 16, we have this amazing freedom and license in knowing Yahweh. We don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to be afraid at all. He's God. He's God. He's our Father. And He loves us. We saw David's title to 
Psalm 16, it, 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 it just says, um, uh, I think it says, a mictum of David. And we, and we loved Charles Spurgeon's rendering of that word. There's some mystery around that word. Not, nobody can absolutely say for sure what it means. But Spurgeon's rendering is the precious secret of David. And of course, that is looking at God. We saw our focal verse last week. Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not, remember what he says, I will not be shaken. You can't shake David, you can't blow him over. I hope that's true in your life. If that's not true in your life, really we should get together and talk. You should not be able to be blown over. You call yourself a Christian, you can't be blown over. Why? Because God is who He is, and I look at Him, and I trust in Him. You remember what David said? David says, I look at God continually. It's, it's not something I do haphazardly. It's not even something I do once a week. It's something I do continually. I never stop doing this. I'm relentless in looking at God. You remember David said, God is my good, my portion, my inheritance, my cup, my lot, my counselor, my Savior, my joy, and my Delight in taking the opportunity last week to look at what looking at God should look like in our lives. This morning, I'm going to turn back our gaze to Yahweh. Tonight, um, in our study, we're looking at the patience and grace of God. And what a, what a perfect topic, really, um, for us as we prepare for the birth of our Lord. Patience and grace. As I thought about this, I was convicted, as I always am. God always convicts me into a puddle when I'm preparing a sermon. Um, I suspect that many of us in this room have not spent a lot of time praising God for His patience. I won't take a poll. Simply praising God for His patience. It's the answer to the sermon Title, Why Are You Still Walking Around? Because God is patient. And by extension, God is gracious. That's why you're still walking around. We, we talked about this early in the series. God crashed the whole, the whole cosmos for one sin. It was just one sin. And it was a rather, shall we say, innocuous sin from our perspective... Just eating something, God told the, the, the first couple not to eat. But this is the point of sin, right? It's always a challenge against God. This is how God sees sin. He's, he's, um, he's holy, right? Holy, holy, holy. And He's dreadfully provoked at His creatures who would presume to spurn and despise Him, which is what sin is. Sin is premeditated malice, rebellion, malicious rebellion. That, so I, I don't want us. I, I want us to have a deep appreciation for this. That we don't have any, uh, shall we say, superficial view of what sin is. It's rebellion. It's the reason I don't like to use the term "the fall of man." This is not a fall. This is not an accident. This is rebellion. And every time you consciously sin against God, it's rebellion. That's what it is. 
And if you've actually sinned against God, how many haven't? Don't raise your hand, please. If you've actually sinned against God, then you know about his patience. Because you shouldn't still be walking around. You should not be walking around. We know what our sin deserves. I, I was thinking about this this week. Let's just say, well, let's just say you're a pretty good person. Maybe you only sin once an hour. And I'm talking about mood, attitude, temper, thought, word, or deed. Maybe just once an hour. You're, you're a pretty good person. Just once an hour. And if we, if we back out your first five years, we'll, we'll grant that, okay, you didn't know what you were doing the first five years. We'll grant that. And we'll take out the eight hours of sleeping every day. If you're 15 years old, you've sinned 58,000 times. If you're 25 years old, you've sinned 116,000 times. If you're 40 years old, you've sinned 204,000 times. If you're 65 years old, you've sinned 350,000 times. Has God been patient? I mean, it's like a lifestyle for us, right? I don't want you to ever forget, he condemned the planet and the race because of one sin. And most of us can't string three thoughts together without sinning. Beloved, what I'm trying to do is help you, I'm trying to help you worship God for his patience in your life. It's a mammoth thing. I, I think we obviously should be, we should be praising him for it. And we have to remember, God's under no obligation to be patient toward you. He's under no obligation. He was not patient with Satan and the fallen angels. He just judged them. There's no reason for him to simply be patient with you. But he is. Why is he patient with man? He judged the fallen angels. He is under no obligation. And biblically, we have to acknowledge that sometimes he's not patient. If we've read our Bibles, if we understand uh, the Scriptures, sometimes his absolute sense of holiness, righteousness, and justice overrules. God's intellectual and emotional life are infinitely complex. We've got to reckon with the magnitude of that, right? As you've probably heard it said, and I love to say this, uh, I like to say it to folks who are really struggling with uh, the mystery of Yahweh and, and how He reacts over here, but He reacts differently over here. What's going on? And I, I love this phrase. I don't really know where I got it. All of God does all that God does. So just because He shows His love here doesn't mean He won't show His wrath here. Because all of God does all that God does. He's in perfect harmony all the time. Piper says it like this, there is a perfect beauty and coherence in how all God's attributes cooperate. But neither is He without complexity. We have to always remember this. His character is more like a symphony than a solo performance. 
Let's look at God's patience by contrast. You're going to recognize most of these stories. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, the two priests, they offered strange fire before God. God executed them. Korah took on God's prophet, Moses. God's holiness, righteousness, justice, and wrath overruled. God executed him and all who were in conspiracy with him. Achan, you remember? He kept a little bit of booty when they took Jericho. God's holiness, righteousness, justice, and wrath overruled. God commanded Israel to stone and burn Achan and his family. Are you getting a picture? It's God's prerogative to do this right now to me, who's probably sinning while I preach. I'm not getting high enough. Right? You remember the one that gets everybody. Uzzah, he reached out to steady the ark. I, I, people ask me about this. They don't get it. Well, let me help you get it. God's holiness, righteousness, justice, and wrath overruled, and he executed him. You remember David got mad. You remember this one too, New, New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. They lied about their offering. God executed them right there in the congregation. God put His holiness, His righteousness, His justice, and His wrath on display. This is God's prerogative every single day, every time you sin. It's God's prerogative. I think we see His patience here, don't we? Don't we see His patience by contrast? We see His patience here. We know the wages of sin is death. God should have executed me a long time ago. You guys know 1 John 5, 16, uh, that sin unto death. And I love what John MacArthur says about this. He says, the sin unto death is not some particular sin. It's just the last one God is going to take from you. Again, humility, contrition, and trembling. Is this, in, is this a part of your life? If it's not, it should be. Yahweh's like this. He's patient, but sometimes he's not patient. Sometimes he takes people out. This is his prerogative. This is always his prerogative. So how many times, again, have you sinned before a holy God? Has God been patient with you? You have to say yes. You have to say yes. If you have a biblical Understanding. I did the math on me. Took out my f first five years. I was, a, I was really a, you know, there's some nasty kids, you know, you know what I'm saying? Um, but, and I was one of them. But I'm just going to give myself those first five years, right? You know, I'll say no sin the first five years. I'll give myself those eight hours a day sleeping. But I did the math. 67 and a half years. Um, one sin per hour, 362,080 sins. I'm telling you, if you do the math, <laughs> okay, let's just say you sin once a day. Let's say I sin once a day. 
Let's just say, I'm a really good person. I only sin once a day. That's 24,637 sins. And God crashed the cosmos because of one. Beloved, we need to get some deep sense here of how patient God's been with you. And with me, sometimes God puts His holiness, righteousness, and justice, and wrath on display. Sometimes He puts His mercy, patience, and forbearance, and grace on display. Amen? It's His prerogative. He does whatever He pleases. He's not going to check with you or me. Let's look at this in Scripture. Abraham and Sarah were deceitful about their marriage, Genesis chapter 12. God was merciful and patient and forbearing. Jacob lied to Isaac, Genesis 27. God was merciful, patient, forbearing. Rahab was a harlot, Joshua 2. God was merciful, patient, and forbearing. David committed murder and adultery again. God was merciful, patient, forbearing. Paul was involved in the persecution and death of Christians. God was merciful, patient, and forbearing. What I want to say to you is we always know what God is going to be like. He's going to be like this. He's going to be like this. But we don't ever really know exactly what he might do in some given situation. He might show us a mercy. He might take him out. We don't know. We don't know. But whatever he does in the Bible, he's teaching you about himself. He's teaching us about himself. That's why we read... Had Joe read Psalm 145, 8, the Lord is full of compassion, slow to anger, which that slow to anger could be translated uh, forbearing. He is long-suffering, a long-suffering God. Yahweh is the God of patience, as the New King James translation says in Romans 15, 5, the God of patience. I get this point since I'm looking at 362,080 sins. I get it. Every day my eyes open and my brain fires, I realize how patient God has been with me. I realize it. Some of us don't even think like this. I'm challenging you. You need to think like this. You know what happens when you think like this? Humility, contrition, and fear. The right kind of fear. We tremble before a great God. The right kind of trembling. We delight in who He is and how He, how he relates to us and what He's done in our lives. We tremble at the prospect that He's a great God. He should have taken me out a long time ago. But He's patient with me. He's patient with me. Let's spend a few minutes looking at God's grace. And there's a go-to a go-to chapter for God's grace. You probably know what it is. If, you want, if you'd like, I'd like for you to turn to Ephesians 1 and 2 with me. Ephesians 1 and 2. This takes us back. Ephesians 1 and 2. It takes us back to the first sermon in the series, which was, Why anything, why everything? And you know, I've been saying this to you for the glory of God and the joy of the elect. Well, uh, we find that all over the Bible, but particularly in 
Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. The principal goal of God is His glory, and the unavoidable consequence of His glory is our joy because His glory is our joy. One reason is because He's been so patient with me, <laughs> and he, He's shown me grace. We're going to talk about what grace is. Some of us may have a deficient view of what grace is. The Bible's very clear about what grace is. It's way bigger than your average Christian understands or thinks or believes. It's way bigger. I mean, you, get, you, could, you could swim in this ocean of theology for a billion eternities and not get close to touching all of it. I know we don't think like that. We think we got God in this little denominational box. Protestants, not that that word means much anymore, but it does mean that we have rejected the tenets of the Catholic Church. Um, and there's a whole lot that could be said there that won't be said at this moment. We don't care what popes and patriarchs and preachers in Houston say. We only care what God says. That's all we care about. And as Protestants, we understand we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Why? Oh, for the glory of God alone, right? We're Protestants. This is what the Reformation was built on, the solas. And looking specifically at God's grace, again, we have this beautiful passages, Ephesians 1 and 2. And we see the foundational answer to why anything and why everything I think I shared with you some months ago that uh, some years ago I preached Ephesians 1 in a local Southern Baptist church and about a third of the congregation got up and left while I was preaching. I don't know if that's ever happened here. Um, about a third got up and left. And it's one of my favorite memories. I know it's terrible for me to say that. But I tell you what, if you're a preacher and you stand in the pulpit and you preach the word of God and people walk out, let it be so. Let it be so. If you preach the pure grace of God as God has revealed the pure grace of God, men In large measure. Church members don't like it so much. Born again believers love it. Born again believers love it. You know why we love it? Because without sovereign grace, we know we're in hell. There's only one place for us to go without sovereign grace. It would be to hell. I'm going to read a somewhat lengthy um, quote from A.W. Pink. It's in our study tonight. Listen to this. And this is true. This is why people walk out when preachers preach Ephesians 1 <laughs> and Ephesians 2. Nothing more riles the natural man of, and, and brings out his innate hostility against God than to press home the eternality, freeness, and absolute sovereignty of divine grace. 
That God should, be, uh, should have formed His purpose from everlasting without consulting the creature is too abasing, is too abasing for the unbroken heart. Man, you've got to have a broken heart. You've got to know who you are to relish what God has done. That grace cannot be earned or won by any efforts of man is an affront to self-righteousness. That's what I watched walk out. I watched self-righteousness walk out. And that grace singles out whom it pleases. It arouses the hot protest of haughty rebels. A lawless insurrectionist dares to call into question the justice of God's divine sovereignty. I love that. Humility, contrition, trembling. This is why people in some Baptist churches walk out when you preach Ephesians 1, Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans 11, John 6, John 10, John 17, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Peter 1, etc., etc., etc. It's why people walk out. It's a hostility toward God. It's an unbroken heart. It's self-righteousness. It's haughtiness. It's the clay rising up against the potter. So in abbreviated fashion, let's look real quick at, at Ephesians 1 and 2. This is the grace of God. I'm going to pick up here verse 3. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, of course, that will take us a billion eternities to understand what the every is. Verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. And here it comes. Verse 6. Why has God done anything? Why has God done everything? To the praise of the glory of His grace. You're a trophy of His grace. He did it. He did it. You know, this is why in Exodus 33, when, when, when Moses says, show me your glory, immediately, what does God say? I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, and I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. That's what he says. Mo Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, here's my glory. I saved the rebels. I do it. I saved the rebels. Let me continue. Verse 6, To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. The riches of His grace have been lavished upon us. And Christianity is a small thing to you? <laughs> You've not understood. You've not understood. Church goings, uh, uh, shall we say, it's negotiable. It's always on the bubble. I may go, I may not go. I don't think you've understood. I don't think you have understood. So why does God choose us before the foundation of the world? Why does he predestine us to adoption as sons? Why anything? Why everything? Why the tree in the garden? Why the manger? Why the cross? Why the vessels of wrath and mercy in, in, in Romans 9? It's right there. Ephesians 1 verse 6. For the praise of his glory... Of His grace. That's why. That's why. 
Everything flows from this purpose of God to the praise of the glory of His grace. Let me just read a quote to you from John Piper. The ultimate aim of perfect love, which of course God does, he, loves, he does everything perfectly, He loves perfectly, would be, listen to this, this makes my heart beat fast, it gives me goosebumps, you can't see them, but I have them right now. The, the, the ultimate aim of perfect love would be God's gift of Himself for the everlasting enjoyment of the Beloved. We've been talking a lot about this. And he continues, God does this in such a way, and I love this, that the whole panorama of God's glorious attributes would be known with the greatest clarity and enjoyed with the greatest intensity. You know, these guys that want to throw out these words, these words of election and predestination and chosen and called and people that hate these words, they just want to throw these out. I really believe they're touching the glory of God. It's why God said to Moses, God, Moses says, show me your glory, and I'm going to say it again. And God says, I'll have compassion on whomever I have compassion on. I do that. I make that decision. I'm a sovereign God. Contrition, humility, and trembling. Let it be. Let it be. Let it be so. If, if, if that's not part of your Christianity, you, you're not a Christian. You, you, you don't know anything about Christianity. God means for you to tremble. When was the last time you trembled as you got into the Bible and you realized, man, if I don't get sovereign grace, it's bad for me. You know? You love it. We love it. As we saw five weeks ago, in considering God's foreknowledge, God has not chosen and predestined us because He foresaw that we would choose Him. It's not what it means. not what the word means. You do your own Bible study. You do your own word study. You don't have to believe me. Words mean what they mean. Everybody knows. Everybody who's, done their, everybody who's studied these texts knows exactly what God is saying. Please, I invite you, if you doubt me, if you struggle with these things, it's, you, you just need to be willing to tremble and let the words, be what they, let the words mean what the words mean. The Holy Spirit drives, us, drives this point home for us in Ephesians chapter 2. For those of us who may have a deficient understanding of God's election and foreknowledge, um, he kind of drives the point home. Ephesians 2. Guess what you were? Guess what I was? What does the Bible say? Ephesians 2.1. What were you? You were dead. Now, I invite you to go down to the funeral parlor and you park right in front of any dead person and you watch what they do. Just, I invite you to do it. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, if you don't understand what God's Word is saying to you, go down there and ask a mortician. What do dead people do? They don't do anything. And you don't either. Unless God initiates. Unless God does the miracle 
You were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among them. We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were dead we don't do anything. We are Lazarus in the tomb. And until he calls us out, we stay in the tomb. We are rotting and stinking and decomposing. Unless God calls us out. Something big had to happen. Something huge had to happen. Something larger than what was beyond your capacity to do had to happen. The Holy Spirit says that you and I were captive to Satan and the lusts of the flesh. The Bible says we were slaves to sin, Romans 6.20. Slaves can't liberate themselves. They don't have that authority or the power. They can't liberate themselves. God liberates sin, slaves. God does that. You guys remember... Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. It used to be veiled to you. In whose case the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Your mind used to be blinded. That they may not see the light of the glory, uh, the gospel of the glory of Christ. A blind man can't make himself see. Something extraordinary had to happen. The Holy Spirit says here that by nature you were damned. You were damned. You were a child of wrath. Just like those vessels of wrath Romans 9.22 mentions. No one can remove the wrath of God, but God Himself. Do you see why He tells Moses, when Moses says, show me your glory, do you see why God says what He says? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What's that got to do with everything? anything? It's got everything to do with everything. Everything is about the praise of the glory of His grace. Everything. And the vessels of wrath will give testimony for a billion eternities to that fact. And the vessels of mercy will give testimony to the validity of that fact. We were dead, slaves to sin, justly des des uh, destined for hell. But, <laughs> you know, when, when Brad went off to seminary, uh, I did a little, a little thing for him. Some of you have probably seen it. It just says, but God, you know, comma. It's Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God. All, all, I, just said is, all, all I just said was true of you and me, but God. Maybe the most beautiful two words in all the Bible, <laughs> right? But God, but what? Verse 4, chapter 2. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 
I mean, if you came in here thinking grace was anything other than the sovereign election of God, you came in here with a misunderstanding. It is the sovereign election of God. Show me your glory, Yahweh. I'll have mercy on whomever I please, and I'll be gracious to whomever I please. I don't care if nobody likes it. The elect like it. Plenty. I love it when God says, I'm God. I love it. I love it a lot. But God made us alive. As Peter says, God caused us to be born again. 1 Peter 1, 3. This is the extraordinary thing that happened, had to happen. This is the supernatural thing that had to happen. This is the big, huge, giant thing that had to happen. The thing beyond my control, this had to happen. For it is by grace that you have been saved. Beloved, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, this is the grace of God. If you have any confusion about it, this is the grace of God. This is, this is it right here. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Who knows how to do that? Can you imagine how much money you could make if you could sell that? Who knows how to do that? Do you know how to be born again? Do you know how to take out that heart of stone and, and put in that heart of flesh? Can you do that? No. God does it. God does that. Vodi Bauckham, famous American pastor, theologian, this century. I love what he says. Being born again isn't something you ask for. You don't have sense enough to ask for it. Because you're dead. God does this by grace and for his glory. <clears throat> I love how John Calvin said it, 16th century Reformation theologian. This is always, I've got it written in several places in my Bible. I've always loved this. You don't decide to be born again. You discover you are. Now, I don't know how you talk about your conversion. That's how I talk about mine. Because a famous theologian said it. No, that's what happened to me. That's what happened to me. That's why I, I, I believe these things so wholeheartedly. Because this is what happened to me. And this is why Paul writes like he writes. It happened to him too. He wasn't on his way to Damascus to learn how to be a Christian. He was on his way to Damascus to kill them. What happened? Something big happened. Something huge happened. Something extraordinary and supernatural happened. God invaded his life. This is the grace of God. This is the grace of God. It happened to Noah. Happened to Abraham. Happened to Moses. Happened to Gideon. Happened to David. Happened to the 11 faithful disciples. And again, it happened to Paul. And I'm just going to say, hey, why don't you reckon with the magnitude of that? Reckon with it. Love it. If you don't love it, work on it. But don't touch the glory of God by rejecting it. Because I, I will assert to you, it, I, I, and I, I, listen, I'm not infallible. I could be wrong here. But I think it's touching the glory of God 
not to understand what Ephesians 1 and 2 is saying and not to give him the glory for it. We turn this thing into a little formula where, oh, you just pray this prayer and you just do this ordinance and, you know, we're going to vote you in and you're good to go. That's, that's the extent of it. No, the first thing that has to happen is the supernatural thing has to happen. The thing we can't do has to happen. It has to happen. Let's move on here. Chapter 2, I'm in verse 6. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There it is. Here it is. For by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. Now, the Bible talks about this boasting thing a couple of times. God has arranged it in such a way that you can't boast. Now, if you got your chest out because you believe you're right with God, you need to get your chest back in because you had, you know, apart from God, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. The Holy Spirit asks, Romans 3, 27, where is boasting? You guys know 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 30. The Holy Spirit uses the word called and chosen five times in five verses. This is how God saves his people, that no man should boast. And he, he goes on to say, for it's by his doing that you are in Christ. He did it. He did it. He did it. The folks that left this church a year or so ago, they don't like these words. They don't like this kind of talk. But may I simply say, if God doesn't use these words, if He doesn't talk like this, if He doesn't save like this, we all go to hell. You know why? Because Ephesians 2 is true. You're dead, you're captive, and you're damned. Now, I don't know where you are on this. I assume most of you are you're right on this. You may struggle with it a little bit. That's fine. You're still working on it. That's fine. But this is the truth of the Word of God. This is the truth of the Word of God. And again, the Apostle Paul could write these words because this was his life. This was his life. This was his conversion. He's on his way to Damascus. To persecute Christians. And then John 3, 3 happened. Or Ephesians 2, 4 happened. 1 Peter 1 happened. Unmerited favor happened. Unmerited favor. That's the short definition of God's grace. Unmerited favor. It's in my notes somewhere. I went past it, so I'm going to go back. Unmerited favor. We could say the undeserved, unwarranted, unjustified, unearned favor of God or, or the approval, support, kindness, esteem, sympathy, and partiality, preference of God. Unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. So, where does that leave the unconverted man or woman this morning? 
if we're going to talk like if we're going to talk about God like this. Where does that leave you if you don't know him? If you don't believe that the Ephesians 2 4 thing has happened in your life. Where does that leave you? First, I trust that you can at least see cognitively how very patient God has been with you. <laughs> I want you to at least see that. How very patient God has been with you. If one sin crashed the cosmos, he has been extremely long-suffering with you. You have sinned a lot against a holy God. Secondly, what should you do? Get in God's way. That's what you do. You get in God's way. Being here is part of that. Being in the Bible studies, it's part of that. Seeking Him on, on, with your own Bible study, opening your Bible at home and, and, and reading words. You know, I can't tell you how many, how many uh, uh, testimonies I've heard. People were converted just reading it. They at least had enough, you know, initiative to open their Bible and read it, and people get converted. It's, how does faith come? By the Word of God. You've got to put your, yourself in the way of God. You tell your family and friends they need to put themselves in the way of God. Not that he can't find them. But this is what we can do. This is what we can do. Jesus said, repent and believe. Right? Mark 1.15. Repenting or turning away from all known sin. Changing your mind about the sin in your life. That's part of. That's part of it. Listen, I know you have the capacity of will to stop looking at porn. I know you do. You may not be converted, but you can decide not to look at porn anymore. You can decide not to, you know, not to uh, gossip anymore. You can decide not to lie anymore. You have a will. You can decide not to do that. I say, put down your sin. Jim, I don't think I'm converted. Okay, well, do you want God? Seek God. Do what he says. Repent. Change your mind about the sin in your life. And, and, and start asking God for humility and contrition and trembling. My spiritual mentor says it like this. Believe as much as you can. You're not off the hook. Ephesians 2.4 hasn't happened. You're not off the hook. The Bible's clear. You're responsible. God's sovereign, but you're responsible. Say, Jim, I don't like that. doesn't matter. That's the way God says it. That's how God talks about it. God has called you to this. The Bible is clear. Karen shared this verse with me yesterday. And, I, and it just fits the sermon. Because if you're unconverted and you don't want to do any of the things I just said, it's like Paul and Barnabas rebuking the unbelieving Jews. He said, you, they, they said, you have judged yourself unworthy of eternal life. If you're unwilling to do the, the simple things I've talked about, you have judged yourself unworthy of eternal life. I love that text. It's big. So let me talk to the unconverted as I close out, here's what God says. Seek me while I may be found. Call upon me while I am near. 
Isaiah 55, 6. God says, today if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. Hebrews 23, 15. God says, if you seek me and find me, when you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29, 13. And God says, and I love to combine these two texts, Isaiah 65, 1 and Ezekiel 33, 11. God says, here I am. Why then should you die? The invitation is there, beloved. You do what God's called you to do. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And for the believer here today, I call you to be filled with awe and wonder. I don't, I don't even need to say this because you already are. <laughs> if you're converted, you, you, already, you already are full of awe and wonder and worship. You know who you were. Before the big thing happened, before the extraordinary thing happened, before the supernatural thing happened, do you know who you were? I know who I was. You were dead. You were captive. You were by nature a child of wrath, Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up. And, raised, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that the ages, in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Not a result of works that you should boast. When you see him, you're not going to say, I prayed the prayer. You're not going to say that. You're not going to say that. The prayer that doesn't appear anywhere in Scripture. You're not going to say that. You're not going to say that. You're going to praise him. Here, here, let me close. You're going to praise him. <laughs> yeah, we're going to praise him of for the glory of His grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. It's all patience and grace, right? There's patience before there's grace. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together.